Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. Stephen Crane's famous story, An Episode of War, is set during the Civil War. Leaving the field silently and mournfully, a lieutenant leaves the field to seek medical attention and begins a dark journey. The lieutenant's wandering quest takes him through scenes of wartime horror, batteries sweep in majestic, frightening curves bent on destruction, and horsemen curse and shout amid a chaos of levers, motors, and wheels. This chorus of war is ferocious and emotional with dramatic passion. This story is an example of literary naturalism, which was a literary movement that developed in the 1800s as a reaction to Romanticism. While Romanticism focused on emotion, imagination, and nature, Naturalism tried to portray life as it really is. Writers of Naturalism emphasized the power of nature, environment, and other forces over ordinary people. An Episode of War by Stephen Crane We begin. The lieutenant's rubber blanket lay on the ground, and upon it he had poured the company's supply of coffee. Corporals and other representatives of the grimy and hot-throated men who lined the breastwork had come for each squad's portion. The breastwork was a low wall put up quickly as a defense in battle. The lieutenant was frowning and serious at this task of division. His lips pursed as he drew with his sword various crevices in the heap until brown squares of coffee, astoundingly equal in size, appeared on the blanket. He was on the verge of a great triumph in mathematics, and the corporals were thronging forward, each to reap a little square, when suddenly the lieutenant cried out and looked quickly at a man near him, as if he suspected it was a case of personal assault. The others cried out also when they saw blood upon the lieutenant's sleeve. He had winced like a man stung, swayed dangerously, and then straightened. The sound of his hoarse breathing was plainly audible. He looked sadly, mystically over the breastwork at the green face of a wood, where now were many little puffs of white smoke. During this moment the men about him gazed statue-like and silent, astonished and awed by this catastrophe which happened when catastrophes were not expected, when they had leisure to observe it. As the lieutenant stared at the wood, they too swung their heads, so that for another instant all hands, still silent, contemplated the distant forest as if their minds were fixed upon the mystery of a bullet's journey. The officer had, of course, been compelled to take his sword into his left hand. He did not hold it by the hilt. He gripped it at the middle of the blade awkwardly. Turning his eyes from the hostile wood, he looked at the sword as he held it there and seemed puzzled as to what to do with it, where to put it. In short, this weapon had of a sudden become a strange thing to him. He looked at it in a kind of stupefaction, as if he had been endowed with a trident, a scepter, or a spade. Finally, he tried to sheathe it. To sheathe a sword held by the left hand, at the middle of the blade, in a scabbard hung at the left hip, is a feat worthy of a sawdust ring. 
This wounded officer engaged in a desperate struggle with the sword and the wobbling scabbard, and during the time of it breathed like a wrestler. But at this instant the men, the spectators, awoke from their stone-like poses and crowded forward sympathetically. The orderly sergeant took the sword and tenderly placed it in the scabbard. At the same time he leaned nervously backward and did not allow even his finger to brush the body of the lieutenant. A wound gives strange dignity to him who bears it. Well men shy from his new and terrible majesty. It is as if the wounded man's hand is upon the curtain which hangs before the revelations of all existence. The meaning of ants, potentates, wars, cities, sunshine, snow, a feather dropped from a bird's wing. And the power of it sheds radiance upon a bloody form and makes the other men understand sometimes that they are little. His comrades look at him with large eyes thoughtfully. Moreover, they fear vaguely that the weight of a finger upon him might send him headlong, precipitate the tragedy, hurl him at once into the dim gray unknown. And so the orderly sergeant, while sheathing the sword, leaned nervously backward. There were others who proffered assistance. One timidly presented his shoulder and asked the lieutenant if he cared to lean upon it, but the latter waved him away mournfully. He wore the look of one who knows he is the victim of a terrible disease and understands his helplessness. He again stared over the breastwork at the forest, and then, turning, went slowly rearward. He held his right wrist tenderly in his left hand as if the wounded arm was made of very brittle glass. And the men in silence stared at the wood, then at the departing lieutenant, then at the wood, then at the lieutenant. As the wounded officer passed from the line of battle, he was enabled to see many things which as a participant in the fight were unknown to him. He saw a general on a black horse gazing over the lines of blue infantry at the green woods which veiled his problems. An aide galloped furiously, dragged his horse suddenly to a halt, saluted, and presented a paper. It was, for a wonder, precisely like a historical painting. To the rear of the general and his staff, a group, composed of a bugler, two or three orderlies, and the bearer of the corpse standard, all upon maniacal horses, were working like slaves to hold their ground, preserve their respectful interval, while the shells boomed in the air about them and caused their chargers to make furious, quivering leaps. A battery, a tumultuous and shining mass, was swirling toward the right. The wild thud of hoofs, the cries of the riders shouting blame and praise, menace and encouragement, and last, the roar of the wheels, the slant of the glistening guns, brought the lieutenant to an intent pause. The battery swept in curves that stirred the heart. It made halts as dramatic as the crash of a wave on the rocks. And when it fled onward, this aggregation of wheels, levers, motors, had a beautiful unity, as if it were a missile. The sound of it was a war chorus that reached into the depths of man's emotion. The lieutenant, still holding his arm as if it were of glass, stood watching this battery until all detail of it was lost, save the figures of the riders, which rose and fell and waved lashes over the black mass. Later he turned his eyes toward the battle, 
where the shooting sometimes crackled like bushfires, sometimes sputtered with exasperating irregularity, and sometimes reverberated like the thunder. He saw the smoke rolling upward and saw crowds of men who ran and cheered or stood and blazed away at the inscrutable distance. He came upon some stragglers, and they told him how to find the field hospital. They described its exact location. In fact, these men, no longer having part in the battle, knew more of it than others. They told the performance of every corps, every division, the opinion of every general. The lieutenant, carrying his wounded arm rearward, looked upon them with wonder. At the roadside, a brigade was making coffee and buzzing with talk like a girl's boarding school. Several officers came out to him and inquired concerning things of which he knew nothing. One, seeing his arm, began to scold. Why, man, that's no way to do. You want to fix that thing. He appropriated the lieutenant and the lieutenant's wound. He cut the sleeve and laid bare the arm, every nerve of which softly fluttered under his touch. He bound his handkerchief over the wound, scolding away in the meantime. His tone allowed one to think that he was in the habit of being wounded every day. The lieutenant hung his head, feeling in this presence that he did not know how to be correctly wounded. The low white tents of the hospital were grouped around an old schoolhouse. There was here a singular commotion. In the foreground, two ambulances interlocked wheels in the deep mud. The drivers were tossing the blame of it back and forth, gesticulating and berating, while from the ambulances, both crammed with wounded, there came an occasional groan. An interminable crowd of bandaged men were coming and going. Great numbers sat under the trees, nursing heads or arms or legs. There was a dispute of some kind raging on the steps of the schoolhouse. Sitting with his back against a tree, a man with a face as gray as the new army blanket was serenely smoking a corncob pipe. The lieutenant wished to rush forward and inform him that he was dying. A busy surgeon was passing near the lieutenant. Good morning, he said with a friendly smile. Then he caught sight of the lieutenant's arm, and his face at once changed. Well, let's have a look at it. He seemed possessed suddenly of a great contempt for the lieutenant. This wound evidently placed the latter on a very low social plane. The doctor cried out impatiently. What muttonhead had tied it up that way anyhow? The lieutenant answered, Oh, a man. When the wound was disclosed, the doctor fingered it disdainfully. Humph, he said. You come along with me and I'll tend to you. His voice contained the same scorn as if he were saying, You will have to go to jail. The lieutenant had been very meek, but now his face flushed and he looked into the doctor's eyes. I guess I won't have it amputated, he said. Nonsense, man, nonsense, nonsense, cried the doctor. Come along now, I won't amputate it. Come along, don't be a baby. Let go of me, said the lieutenant, holding back wrathfully his glance fixed upon the door of the old schoolhouse, as sinister to him as the portals of death. And this is the story of how the lieutenant lost his arm. When he reached home, his sisters, his mother, his wife, sobbed for a long time at the sight of the flat sleeve. Oh, well, he said, standing shamefaced amid these tears. I don't suppose it matters so much as all that. Thanks for joining us. 
Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.